invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Revelation as we are beginning a brand new series on the... Uh, no, we are uh, concluding a series on the book of Revelation. Um, it's very tempting to begin a brand new series on the book of Revelation. I'm sure it would be uh, a blessing as we go through these incredible words again. Uh, what I'm trying to do this morning is just do a wrap-up on uh, as, as we close out. What are the lessons that are uh, most central to the book and things that Jesus most wants us to know. So we're going to be looking at a lot of different passages in uh, the book of Revelation. If, if you have your Bible with you, you can be ready to flip um, from here and there. Uh, as we look this morning at the blessings of the book of Revelation, I'm going to read um, for the first eight verses of chapter one as we begin. Let's give our attention to God's word. Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Lord Jesus, this is your revelation given to your church, and we then this morning pray for eyes to see and to hear and to keep all that you tell us. As you, Lord, use your word to make us in your likeness and to equip us, prepare us for the day when you will return. Wash us with this word. Make us precious and white as your bride. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come uh, this morning to the last Sunday of 2019, it's a, it's a good Sunday to end uh, this wonderful book. And uh, as we look forward to another year, a new decade, uh, all the truths that we've learned here uh, we'll find to be sufficient uh, for our faith, for our uh, pilgrim journey. Uh, we began this study this past February. If you remember, I confess some fear and trepidation as um, I've never uh, been here before, but never been through the book before, but I found it to be a great blessing and hope you have as well. This is now the 33rd sermon of our series, and as I said, a wrap-up. As you... Um, as we've noted, this is a letter from Christ Jesus, the King, the Bridegroom, to His beloved bride, to His church. Uh, it begins with a blessing and ends with a promise. The blessing we find in verse 3 of chapter 1, blessed 
are the ones, uh, is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And it ends with Christ's promise, surely I am coming soon, chapter 2220. Uh, this letter uh, written by John would have been then sent to the early church. It would have been passed uh, from church to church and read aloud, most likely in their worship services, uh, most likely in its entirety. Uh, it takes just about an hour to read. And this morning, I'd like to conclude this series then by asking the question, if Jesus uh, assures us that there's blessing here, what are the specific blessings of hearing these words? And um, what are the truths that Jesus intends to feed our souls with? What are the things that can save us and sanctify us and satisfy our souls? What are the central things that we want to take from this magnificent letter? Uh, what are the things that Jesus wants us to know so that we can stand as his church, that we can endure in the midst of uh, the devil's persecution and uh, the false prophet's deception? Uh, what does he want us to see by faith so that uh, we can endure the suffering that we will face and gain the world that's to come? And so this morning, I've... I've um, as you have in your outline there, just collected some of the very most fundamental truths uh, that I believe Jesus intends to communicate in this message, things that throw, show up throughout the book, uh, first looking at the reality of spiritual warfare. One of the things that has surprised me about this book is how insistent Jesus is in this letter uh, to remind us that we are engaged in spiritual realities and spiritual warfare. Uh, as we said early, uh, this is uh, Jesus pulling back the veil so that we can see the things as they really are, what's, what's really happening. And we see the devil at work, spiritual forces at work. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I believe, said that one of the devil's greatest tricks is to convince the church that, or, or the world that he does not exist. And uh, throughout this letter, Jesus strives to remind the church that he does. And so in chapter 2, verse 12, Jesus writing to the church in Pergamum says, I know where you live, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Satan's throne. What if he said that, uh, Harvest, I know where you live, there in Grand Rapids, uh, West Michigan, right there where Satan lives. It's meant to get our attention. In chapter 12, we see that the devil uh, is engaged in a war in, in the heavens. He's defeated. He's cast down to earth. And in great fury, he makes war against the church, the followers of Christ. In chapter 13, we see the nature of that warfare as we are shown two beasts, allies of the devil, the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth. The beast of the sea um, represents the devil at work in all of his oppressive power through uh, political, social, and economic oppression, and it is highly effective. Uh, but we also see the beast of the earth, the false prophet, who wages war on the church through false teaching. Jesus wants us to know that this battle is continuing today. The devil is truly at work we see around the world an increase in persecution as the sea beast is uh, waging his war. Uh, we see uh, false teachers constantly. That's why it's so critical for God's 
church for you and I to be discerning when it comes to teaching from Scripture. When it comes to Scripture, friends, false teachers aren't just mistaken or even wrong. They're agents of the devil sent to weaken the church and send souls to hell. That's why false teachers exist. I know that that sounds radical to us. It's what Jesus says in the book of Revelation. False teachers don't just sort of show up by accident. And their intent, whether they know it or not, the devil's intent in false teachers is to weaken the church and drag people to hell. So when you see winsome, convincing, charming teachers, pay attention to your Bible. Is he saying what Scripture says, or is he not? And, and don't be deceived, right? Uh, charming, convincing, winsome men lead many astray. Rob Bell was an agent of the devil. That sounds outrageous to us. Who are we to say such a thing? Friends, people who follow the teaching of Rob Bell will go to hell. Because the scripture he teaches is not the, is not the scripture that we have in front of us. The Jesus he teaches is not the Jesus of this scripture. The gospel he teaches is not the gospel that we have in these pages. That matters. It matters. The health and wealth teachers are agents of the devil. People will go to hell because they follow Joel Olstein's gospel of faith in self and love of mammon where health and wealth teachers will tell you that Jesus died to make you rich, to make you wealthy, to, to uh, save you from any suffering. That's not just an interesting error. That is the false prophet at work. And people who believe that will not be equipped to stand in the day of persecution and will fall away. People will lose their soul because of that teaching. As you know, a few, uh, two years, three years ago now, Joanne and I had the opportunity to go to England for two months and study. And uh, you'll find England, uh, as much of Europe, to be dotted with churches. Churches in every town. Very old. Almost completely empty. What happened? Uh, those churches were not emptied by persecution. They were emptied by false teachers. They were emptied by people who came and undermined the authority of Scripture. They were, they were emptied by people who came and changed the gospel so it's no longer God's good news to sinners in Jesus Christ of how you can be saved from sin, but it, the, the gospel got changed to how the church needs to be engaged to make the world a better place, the social gospel. And people lost their soul. And the church died. So it is not fanaticism or fundamentalism to say that the devil is serious about destroying the church through oppression 
or through deception. And the fact that it sounds fanatical for us to say it just shows how blind, clueless, insensitive we've been to the reality of spiritual warfare. The devil is actively engaged, friends, in our world today and in the church today, and he is effective. The devastating decline that you, that you, that you see happening uh, or has happened in Europe and the decline that we're seeing happening in our country is happening because of the, the active engagement of our enemy. You need to wake up that the devil actually hates you if you are a follower of Christ. He hates your children. He actually really does want to destroy the church. Yes, even Harvest Church and every church that preaches the name of Christ And the more we seek to follow Christ, the more we seek to shine the light of the gospel into the darkness of this world, the more we can expect his attention and his attacks. I was reading an article this past week written by a pastor. He writes this, when we started to think about planting a church, a friend told us, you're going to go through more spiritual warfare in one year of church planting than in 10 years of pastoral ministry. Sure enough, We encountered more hardship in the first year than ever before in our lives. You don't think that'll happen here? You don't think the devil's seeking to weaken, undermine, destroy the gospel witness of this church as we seek to plant churches, as we seek to engage our community? The man continues, one day that year I came across a quote from C.H. Spurgeon, quote, when you sleep... Remember, you're resting on the battlefield. When you walk, suspect an ambush in every hedge. We are at war. Spiritual warfare sounds like a strange concept to many of us, but it's the normal Christian life. Remember, John is writing in the context of warfare. In verse 9 of chapter 1, he introduces himself as, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. It's normal for the church to suffer as we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. We do not wage war with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers. Is the devil out to destroy you and your family and your marriage and your friendships and your faith? Yes, he is. It's war. Is the Christian life hard? Yes, it's war. Is church life hard? Yes, it's war. That's why Jesus wrote the letter to remind us of who we are and where we are and to equip us with a faith that is sufficient for the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves. Jesus reminds us of the reality of spiritual warfare. Secondly, Jesus reminds us of the reality of his own glory. And that's the overwhelming thing that we find in this letter. John begins this letter with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. If, if we see nothing else but Jesus in the book of Revelation, we've seen all that we need to see. And not only is this letter from Jesus, it's about Jesus. Now, of course, that's true of every book in the Bible, right? He is the author of all the books. And they are all about him. They all testify to him. But there's a uniqueness to the book of Revelation. Uh, The Old Testament books, in one way or another, point forward to the coming and ministry of Christ. Uh, The Gospels uh, speak about the earthly ministry 
of Jesus Christ, his identity and what he accomplished for the salvation of sinners. The epistles in the New Testament are written to explain all the meaning of Jesus' ministry. So it lays down the doctrine, the foundational truths of the church. But the book of Revelation is a view behind the veil. It's a, it's a view of the ministry of Jesus Christ as he is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. It's written 60 years after his ascension. This is Jesus' current ministry and his current identity and glory in heaven. Uh, it, this, this is meant to show us things as they really are. And at the center of things as they really are is Jesus as King and Lord and Judge and Savior. And so let's notice some of the things we've seen about Jesus in the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus wants us to see him as the sovereign Lord over human history. The sovereign Lord over human history. One of the greatest revelations we have here is the sovereignty of our Lord and Savior. Jesus wants us to know, to understand, that the world that we live in, the life that we are uh, walking, is not driven or molded by random circumstances or events, but purely, simply, directly by the superintending, ordaining purposes of Jesus. He's introduced in 1 verse 5 as the ruler of kings on the earth. Uh, the whole, the, the, one of the opening visions where uh, John, the great question goes out, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Who is worthy to unfold the sovereign purposes of God in the world and to accomplish the saving purposes of God and the judgment of God on evil? Who's worthy to do that? And no one was found worthy. And John begins to weep and weep because of the the, the, the great plight of mankind if no one is able to unfold human history, if the devil is actually in control. But then one of the elders said to me, weep, no more. 5 verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll with its seven seals. And the rest of the book of Revelation is Jesus doing exactly that, opening the scrolls, revealing the purposes of God and revealing himself to be the sovereign Lord. And when John looks to see the lion, what does he see? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. That the Jesus who went to the cross and was crucified and was raised to life, that Jesus is the alpha and omega of human history. And that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega of your life, whether you believe in him or not, makes no difference. He's the sovereign Lord of human history. And that is not a theology to debate. That's the fundamental reality of the world, the universe. It's easy for us to forget it. The world obviously doesn't believe it. And to our human eyes, we can just sort of uh, live by the underwriting uh, sort of assumption that our world is driven by politics and policies and business conglomerates and warring social forces, and we're, we're keeping track of all of it on our social media. And Jesus just says, just, just put it aside. He wants you to see the vital truth of his sovereign reign. Now to a suffering church, a suffering believer, that truth might 
sound true but not feel relevant? What is the benefit of Jesus on the throne if there's still so much wrong in the world and so much wrong with my life? I think of the early church. People are being dragged to the local arena and fed to lions. They're being put to death. They're being put in prison. What is the benefit of Jesus sovereignly in glory on his throne when I'm left here to rot in prison or my loved ones are being put to death unjustly simply because they believe in Jesus? What's the benefit? When persecution comes to this country, there will be millions of people asking that question. What I believe in Jesus. I do not understand how this can be happening if Jesus is on his throne. And Jesus says many will fall away. It doesn't make sense. Well, the book of Revelation, in, in the book of Revelation, Jesus uh, seeks to shore up our faith and to equip us in two ways, answering this question, what is the benefit? It answered primarily in two ways. The first is that the king who reigns on the throne does so with nail marks in his hands and feet. Jesus introduced himself. I am the living one, the one who died and is alive again. He continually throughout the book reminds us that he died, suffered and died for us. He is the lamb looking as though it had been slain. And the reason that matters, you see, the central truth is that Jesus conquered by his death, by his suffering. And we, his, his bride, are called to follow in his steps, not in a saving way, Christ's Suffering is the merit, the foundation, the fountain of salvation. But Jesus calls his bride to follow him in this world and we to conquer as we suffer. And so suffering is not unusual. It's the norm. Remember what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, chapter 2.10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. King Jesus, sovereign Lord on the throne, we wish you would say, do not fear, you are not going to suffer. That's not what he says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. In chapter 11, we see the two witnesses representing the church, and they're witnessing, and, and the world hates it, and so the world kills them and leaves their bodies to lie in the street, and people have a party, and they exchange presents because the church has been killed. We're told several times of the devil making war and conquering the church. Suffering is part of the calling whether that be the suffering of persecution or the suffering of normal uh, living in a fallen world as followers of Jesus Christ, refusing to, to lay, let go of the faith, uh, just willing to trust him. 
But we participate, you see, in the triumph of Christ as we remain faithful even to death. Revelation 12, verse 11. And they, the saints, have conquered him, the devil, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Jesus calls us to love our lives not even unto death. To be willing to die. Trusting in his sovereign lordship. Suffering is not an evidence of the failure of our sovereign king. It is, it is essential to his victory and it is a way we participate in that victory and gain the crown. That's the first way then. What is the benefit? The benefit is that we have a savior who knows and, and a savior who is able to keep us as we go through the suffering. The, the other is just remember that the sovereign reign of Jesus Christ extends over every aspect, over, over every work of the devil, so that while he rages uh, and causes great destruction, all of his acts accomplish the saving and judging purposes of God. The devil does nothing that does not serve either God's saving purposes or his judging purposes. Christ's saving purposes or Christ's judging purposes. And so when the devil uh, persecutes the church, he is accomplishing the salvation of the faithful, of Christ's salvation of the faithful, as their faith is tested and proven true, as their light shines into the darkness, and, and they are willing to die for their Lord and Savior, and Jesus gets glory. And at the same time, the persecutor, lest he repent, is being condemned. The wrath of God, the, the, the cup of God's wrath is being filled up. The book of Revelation tells us this. Everything the devil does is accomplishing God's purposes, either for salvation or for judgment. The devil has no power except what is granted to him. And every exercise of that power will be ultimately to his own destruction, to the glory of King Jesus in the salvation of his people. That's the truth. Jesus is the sovereign Lord of history. Jesus is also the Lord of his church. One of the things that struck me in this book was uh, the way Jesus talks to his bride. Uh, there's a sternness to it, a love, but a, a seriousness, a soberness. Uh, Jesus has eyes of blazing fire, and he sees the truth. And, and, and in his letters specifically to the churches, he, he points out sin and requires repentance. Let me give you two examples. In the church of Ephesus, they've lost their first love, and Jesus rebukes them and says, repent, or I will remove your lampstand. To the church in Thyatira, they're tolerating this prophetess Jezebel. Jesus says, 2 verse 20, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Behold, I, Jesus, will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into the great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. These are people who go to church, okay? And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Jesus wants us to know he's Lord of the church, and that he expects us to hear him and to keep his words. He is not our buddy. He's not our buddy. 
He's not our life coach. Offering tips and counsel and, and comfort to help us uh, in, in, in difficult things. He's the Lord. And he's holy. And he knows you and he knows me. He's so much more beautiful and glorious and, and loving. <coughs> because he loves his bride. That he, that he calls us to repent. He reminds us, I'm coming, I'm coming soon. Be ready. Be prepared. Because I bring my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. 22 verse 12. That's written to the church. I think one of the things that's just struck me in this book, and it's changed the way I pray, I'm just ascribing to Jesus, Lord, you're holy, you're righteous, you're the judge, you're the Lord, and you are worthy of my obedience and my faith. I want to be ready when you return. He's the Lord of the church. He's the righteous judge of the world. We've seen this over and over, but Jesus just wants us to know that he's going to come again. He's going to judge. There is a judgment day. There's a great white throne. And the the fundamental division that exists in the world is not between good people and bad people. It's between those who follow the lamb and those who follow the devil. Those who belong to Christ have his name written on their forehead. They worship him, and they, and they strive to follow in his ways, and they long for his appearing. And those who belong to the devil, they have the devil's mark on their forehead and on their hands. And they worship the beast and its image, and they follow the harlot, and they live for this world. I was, I was just, uh, we were watching the football game last night, and the ad came on. I don't know what it's for, but there's a line that came up, said, spend your life living. I think it was jewelry or a new car, one of the two. Spend your life living. And I thought, what a lie from the pit of hell. Spend your life living for what? For things that are fleeting and passing. Jesus says, spend your life dying and live forever. You see, on the final day, friends, Jesus will come. And with perfect justice, he will judge with perfect equity, it will be made clear who belongs to the lamb and who belongs to the harlot. Judgment is coming and Jesus wants us to know. But he wants us to know that, third, fourthly, in the context that he is a savior of sinners and worthy of our worship. Throughout the book, Jesus has revealed himself to be a savior of sinners who, who purchased souls for God with his own blood. Verse 5 of chapter 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friend, let me ask you, how do you think of Jesus? Do you think of Jesus as him who loved me and, and who gave himself for me, though he were the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus is the one who's made me a great sinner like me? priest who is God and Father, and, and that you believe that in a way that your response must be to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, because that's the way the church responds throughout the book of Revelation. 
You see this eruption of song, worship, and praise. Let me just list a few. There are more. Revelation chapter 5. And they, the redeemed, sang a new song, verse 9, saying, Worthy are you. So you just write to the Lord Jesus. Worthy are you, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This thunderous roar from the saints of God. Worthy, worthy is the Lamb. Revelation 7, 12. Amen. The, 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 the saints gathered on the mountain with Christ. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So be it. Revelation 15. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy." All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And there's more. The thunderous anthem of the saints is he is worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy of all dominion, all power, all wealth, all honor, all glory, all praise forever and ever. He's worthy, friends, of our worship. He's worthy of our adoration. He's worthy of our witness. He's worthy of our obedience and our devotion. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of your prayers as you drag yourself out of bed in the morning. He's worthy of your trust. As you face circumstances in your life, he's worthy. As you gather the, the family and you bring them to church on a dreary Sunday, and uh, with faint hope, Jesus is worthy of your worship. He's worthy of our praise. And then third and finally, the reality of coming glory. Jesus writes to encourage us that we're on our way to a celestial city. Uh, that he's... He's preparing a place for us. The, the, the letters, the seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor, every letter ends with some reference to, promise about what's yet to come. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, the church in Ephesus. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the, par in the paradise of God. And we're told about that tree of life in chapter 22. Smyrna. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. No harm, no, no judgment to the one who conquers by faith in Christ. Sardis, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Can you imagine Jesus confessing your name before his Father? This one is mine. This one is mine. Jesus gives us wonderful pictures in this letter of that heavenly country, the place he's preparing. Chapter 7, verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. 
The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of their throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Why does Jesus tell us that? So that we can believe them. And that we can long for these realities and comfort our hearts. You see, this is not just an informative letter. This is a letter meant to transform us. It's written for our comfort. It's written for our endurance. It's written for our faith. It's written for our obedience. Blessed are those who hear and blessed are those who keep. Who keep the words of this book. It's not enough to hear. We need to keep. There are things that we need to do, friends. And Jesus has placed all these pillars of reality around us, all these things that are, that are true. As you now stand in this short little span that God has given to you, and to consider the question, now given that all that Jesus is, as he's revealed himself in this book, given all that Christ has accomplished for the salvation of sinners and as King and Lord of the world, given the reality of spiritual forces that are arrayed against you, given the reality of a coming day of judgment that you must face, given the promises of, of eternal joy for those who are in Christ and persevere then in the faith, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of life ought you to pursue? How should we pray? How should we pray if these things are true? We're just going to pray for the passing things, pray for a good day, pray for health, pray for income, pray for relationships. Is that all we have to pray about? If these things are true, would not our prayer be our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and thy kingdom come, and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would I not be Jesus, you are worthy of worship and obedience and praise, and oh God, help me to do that today. And, and, and have mercy on my neighborhood, have mercy on those who don't know you, because you're worthy of their worship too. Friends, Jesus is standing here in his word and by his spirit. Where is he calling you to deeper faith and deeper obedience as you follow him? What sin is Christ calling you to renounce? 
What worldliness might he be pointing out, ways that you've simply made yourself comfortable with the principles and patterns of this passing world so that you're numb to the glories that await? What unbelief or deception are you allowing in your life where the devil has deceived you? He's Lord. And he's written this to you. And he means every word of it. And he intends it for your freedom and for your joy and for your salvation and for your worship. As he shows you himself, a sufficient Savior, worthy of your faith, worthy of your obedience, worthy of your praise. And one day you will see him in that faith, in that glory. Andrew Peterson catches this wonderfully, the central themes of the book of Revelation in his song, He is Worthy. You can feel free to respond if you know how. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. And do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Yes, it is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah who conquered the grave, he is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? And what's the answer? He is. He is. Amen. Lord Jesus, the weight of your glory and your goodness, your dominion and power, your wealth, Lord, the weight is crushing and yet freeing and glorious and good, and, and we happily submit ourselves this morning, to, Lord, to you. Jesus, I thank you that you've written us this letter so that we might see you. And oh God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would use these truths to transform our hearts, that our pettiness, our grudges, our unbelief, our fears are swept away by the light of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, that we, seeing his beauty, his glory, his, 
this, this son of God who died for us to free us from our sin, that we would hate our sin. And as we remember that, that we have by, by grace been made a kingdom of priests to serve our God in this world and that we do not belong to this world. Oh God, give us eyes to see the ways of the kingdom of God and, and then the, the wisdom and will to walk in those ways, to teach our children those ways, for the world is no friend to faith. The devil is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Jesus, don't leave us apathetic to you or to these spiritual realities. For the life we live is the one life we've been given to glorify God. And we will give an account. I pray, Lord, for anyone who is not surrendered to Christ Jesus the King, that they would see how urgent it is they must do so. For those who've been walking in an assumption of faith, but, but really dead to the Lord, oh Jesus, wake us up. Give grace to see. And I pray, oh God, then that, that our faith would be deepened, our trust would be strengthened, that, that we would, Lord, have new eyes and new joy then, seeing that our, our, our life is in your hands and, and we belong to the king, the champion, the conqueror, the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us and who's promised to prepare a place for us and, and is coming to take us home. And no matter what we face then, we can trust your hands and willing to suffer for your name, holding to the faith, because Jesus, you've spoken to us, and we've seen you by faith. Lord Jesus, I pray for Harvest Church, that we would be a church who takes seriously these truths, and that it transforms the way we think about who we are and what we're about, and that we'd be willing to suffer together for the cause of Christ because he's worthy he's worthy and to him belong all the praise and all the glory and all the honor and all the dominion forever and ever and God's people said let's stand and conclude by singing the hymn spoken of the truths spoken of Revelation 15 by the sea of crystal Let's stand in worship.